chats. <laughs> uh, well, as Lennon has said, um, and you've been welcome, I hope you guys have had a, a blessed week reflecting upon Jesus and his birth, had a great time of celebration with your family, um, making memories together with each other. Um, as we come to this last Sunday of 2023, I hope that you've had some time to reflect upon um, the highs and lows of 2023, those things um, just reflecting back. I know for me, um, just some of the highlights for 2023 were, were our marriage study that we did at the beginning of this year. Um, just I've seen some good fruit come from that in my life personally, but also just hearing from others, um, a great, great time. Uh, again, personally, um, back in February, March, whenever D now was, um, Asa made a profession of faith. So I'm excited about that and uh, seeing what the Lord's going to do in his life. Um, we've had many baptisms this year. And um, so with Ezra and Zoe and Michael Hess, Michael and, Mike and Wesley Clark and Mark Morgan. So the joy of being able to celebrate the baptisms this year. Um, uh, in May, my installation as an elder um, to be able to, to, the privilege and joy to be able to serve uh, with and for you. Um, so that's been a highlight. Um, those who, uh, we've also, some of the lows, some of the challenges this year, there's been many people who have, who have, who have experienced loss. I know that hit home for Carla and I um, and Gina and others. Um, but just the, the loss that's been experienced this year. Um, and in this fall, um, the men's and women's studies that we've been able to do. So just some, some great things. Uh, if you haven't taken time to reflect upon 2023, I, I strongly encourage you to do that. And then also, too, to look ahead to what the Lord's going to do in 2024. So have you thought about some of the goals that you have, areas that you want to change, uh, areas that you want to make a fresh start? Um, so I encourage you to do that, do that as well. Well, in preparing for this message... Um, I sent this out to the guys, and, and Preston was very helpful to me. Um, he said, you know, in, in regards to the message, he's, he asked, you know, how are we framing our minds towards faithful obedience this year? So I hope that this morning's text is going to help us with framing our minds towards faithful obedience. So this morning we're going to be in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. So if you'll go ahead and turn to that passage, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, um, the, the black Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, um, you, you're welcome to use that Bible. And, and if you, in fact, if you don't have a Bible, please take it. It's found, uh, the passage is going to be found on page 982 uh, in that Bible. Before we read the text, let me just kind of share with you what led to me go, going to that text. So when Justin asked if I would preach, uh, immediately I started thinking of, where I'm going to go, what, what's the text going to be. And um, this may come as a shock to some of you, but if you know me, you know that I tend to be perfectionistic, and so that creates some challenges and struggles um, just with the, the battles that I have of my thoughts and, and wrestling with different things. Um, I tend to have struggles, that thoughts that lead to downward spiral of things where I have unmet expectations, um, frustrations, negative thoughts, um, and it's like an upside-down funnel. So as th those things increase, the more I think about those negative things, the more frustrated and unstable I become. So the battles in my head are very real, very uh, brutal thoughts that I have. 
um, that are contrary to Scripture uh, and uh, exposing what's really going on in my heart. And it is a true warring of the flesh and the spirit. And although I don't follow through with some of the, the thoughts that I have, praise God, um, irrational thoughts do go through my, my mind. And at those times, they're very dark for me, just as, um, as being in a physical battle. It's, it's like a vicious cycle. Um, our text this morning is also going to focus in on stresses and anxieties. And we've just come through probably one of the most stressful seasons of the year. One, obviously, hopefully of great joy, but can also have a lot of stress with it. Um, there are also stresses related to finances, relationships, whether that be husband-wife relationship, parent-child, adult-child, older um, parent. Uh, work can cause stress and anxiety, fear of man. And we live in a culture that is, um, I would say, obsessed with mental health. Um, we, we tend to focus a lot on mental health, which I think is a good thing. But I also think that we need to shift the focus from mental health to heart health because it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And I would say the mind thinks. So that's kind of what's led to um, me focusing on this passage and some counseling that I've received in the past. Um, Philippians 4.8 has been a verse that I've been encouraged to memorize and I would encourage you to memorize as well as we go through it. Um, so... Um, and obviously, I need to make immediate application of this text in regards to anxieties and fears um, in, in stepping out of my comfort zone. So with that in mind, would you please... Uh, well, actually, we're going to read the text and then we'll pray. So let's read through Philippians 4, 4 through 9, and then we will pray. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would just use it to open our eyes to see you more clearly. Father, may you help us to make application of the principles that you lay forth for us in this text. And Lord, that you would just help us to um, fix our eyes upon you in the midst of real life struggles and, and challenges, Lord. And Lord, so we pray that you would uh, be with us in this time. Give us ears to hear, Lord, eyes to see. And may you accomplish what you desire to accomplish in this time. May I be surrendered and yielded to you, Lord Jesus, for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name. So we see from verses 7 and 9 a focus on the peace of God. So like I said, we're wrapping up the Christmas season where we've spoken of Jesus as being our Prince of Peace. 
In Justin's message from Micah 5 last week, he pointed out that Jesus is our peace. Micah 5, 5 states, and he shall be their peace. Justin pointed out that the passage doesn't say that Jesus will bring peace, but that Jesus is our peace. Peace is a person. And peace is the focus of our text today. So in Philippians 4, 7 and 9, Paul is wanting to draw our attention to, the, to being at peace with God. This peace is something that should be a common state for us. Um, we should be a people at peace. But Paul knows us all too well. That we are often, uh, more than we would like to admit, we find ourselves lacking in peace. We find ourselves in turmoil and chaos. Um, so in, uh, prior to verse 7 and 9, Paul gives several commands or imperatives to, to break the cycle um, that leads us away from peace. And so he gives us these imperatives to, to point us and, and lead us back to peace. So in verses 4 through 9, Paul gives a total of six commands. Uh, these commands are broken into two sections, with each section con- concluding with the repeated promise of the peace of God. I'm going to take each section separately. So we'll look at the first section, which is verses 4 through 7. And there we find the first four commands to apply when we find ourselves lacking in peace. So what is the first command Paul gives us? It is to rejoice. In fact, he repeats it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So what does it mean to rejoice? It means to give joy to, to feel joy or great delight, to be exuberant, jubilant. It means rejoicing implies that there is an object of our rejoicing. And this passage passage is clear that our rejoicing is to be in the Lord. It's not to be confused with happiness. Happiness uh, is dependent upon circumstances. Our focus is to be on the Lord. We should be a people of unending joy and praise for what the Lord has done for us. Our rejoicing will be in direct proportion to our understanding and grasping of all that the Lord has done for us. We're fighting a battle that's already been won, and he will hold us fast. MacArthur, in his commentary on Philippians, speaks of how Paul's overall focus of this passage is spiritual stability. I'll be pulling from some of his thoughts uh, throughout the message today. MacArthur writes, Spiritual stability is directly related to how a person thinks about God. Along those lines, Tozer says, and what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing to us. You see, knowledge of God is the key to rejoicing. Those who know the great truths about God find it easy to rejoice. Those with little knowledge of him find it difficult to rejoice. Those who know the attributes and character of God find it easier to rejoice in the Lord, especially during difficult and challenging times. So, what comes to mind when you're asked, God is blank? What do you fill in the blank with? Well, let's consider some of his attributes. God is eternal. He's holy. He's jealous. He is a just God. He is love. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He's omnipresent, omniscient, 
omniscient. God is always at all times fully aware of everything, including everything that will happen. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is truthful. He is unchangeable. He is wise. God never wrings his hands with anxiety. And he is wrathful towards sin. In order to rejoice in the Lord, we first have to know who he is and what he has done for us. So that's the first command, rejoice in the Lord. In verse 5, we find the second command, to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Other words for reasonableness are gentleness, forbearance, selfishness. It is a disposition that seeks the best for everyone. So would you say that this is your disposition, that you seek the best for everyone? Are you charitable towards the fault of others? Do you extend mercy towards the failure of others? I would venture to say that when we find ourselves not seeking the best for everyone, when we are not being charitable towards the fault of others, and when we are not extending mercy toward others, we are probably not experiencing much peace either. I know this to be the case for me. This often reveals that we have misplaced or unmet expectations that we are looking towards others for our peace or comparing ourselves and our circumstances to others and have, that, and have taken our eyes off of the Lord. Which I think is why Paul reminds us that the Lord is at hand. Oh, how we need to see the Lord's nearness and to experience his nearness and to be reminded of the gospel. And hopefully this reminder that the Lord is at hand brings conviction to us when we are not experiencing mercy or being charitable, or seeking the best for others. Hopefully this reminder that the Lord is near brings comfort. He is near both to hear the cry of our hearts and to help strengthen us. We read that in Psalm 46.1 this morning, that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Psalm 34.18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The nearness of the Lord comforts and confronts and challenges our anxieties. We tend to forget what we know about God in the midst of trials. This leads us to being anxious. Which brings us to the third command. Be anxious, do not be anxious about anything. So we've already considered some of the main causes of stress or anxiety. And in writing this passage, it's as if Paul has already read our mail, how he knows our struggles and our challenges all too well. So what does this text tell us that we're to be anxious about? Nothing. Because of the nearness and peace of God, Christ's followers are to be anxious for nothing. Nothing is outside of his sovereign control or too difficult for him to handle. He is always at work, and although it may be difficult to see what he is doing, We can trust him. We even read in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Anxiety equals instability or uncertainty. We become worried, anxious, and fearful when we do not trust in God's wisdom, power, or goodness. We learned several weeks ago from Isaiah 9, chapter 6, that Jesus is our wonderful counselor, that we can trust him. Truth feeds joy which combats anxiety. 
Rejoicing the Lord in his truth combats anxiety. In fact, Jesus himself addressed anxiety. So let's take a look at what he said and turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. That's going to be page 811 in the, the Black Pew Bible. So I'm not going to unpack this passage, but I want us to hear what Jesus, in his own words, tells us about anxiety. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." When we are anxious, it's probably because we are not seeking his kingdom first. So Jesus tells us in this passage that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To fix our eyes on him. And likewise, in our Philippians passage, we find that Paul addresses anxiety by commanding that we pray and let our requests be known to God. To lay our anxieties at his feet. So the fourth command that Paul gives us is to let your requests be known to God. It is by prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving that we make our requests known to God. Prayer, supplication, and requests refer to specific direct offerings of petition to God. The word requests reminds us of what Jesus asked of the blind beggar in Mark chapter 10. Uh, When the blind beggar was crying out to Jesus to have mercy on him, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And when we don't know what to ask for, we learn from Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words. The remedy of being anxious is trusting God in prayer and thanksgiving. Prayer is the antidote to stress and worry, and it is the cure for anxiety. And thanksgiving is a grateful remembrance of past blessings, which is a safeguard against anxiety For the future. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 states that we are to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Again, MacArthur raises the concept of spiritual stability here and states spiritual stable people react to trials with thankful prayer. So, what are you thankful for? How often do you stop and think about all of the many blessings? the many things 
you have to be thankful for. We have so much to be thankful for. We can be thankful for who God is, for his character, for his attributes, that he never leaves us nor forsakes us, that there is nothing that we are going through or will go through that we cannot handle apart from his help. You know, we often hear that he will not give us more than we can bear, and that's simply not true. The challenges and struggles that we face are, away, are way more than we can bear on our own, which is why we need the Lord. We need to lay our struggles, burdens, and cares at his feet and ask for his help in carrying them. The alternative is to be crushed by all of these, by the weight of all of these things. When we lay these burdens, challenges, anxieties, and fears at the feet of Jesus, he shelters us from the full blow of them and orchestrates these situations for our good. In fact, Romans 8.28 tells us that for those who are trusting in Jesus with their lives, he promises to use everything that happens for our good. They serve as a means to help us grow. So the first commands, so we've, we've finished the first four commands and they conclude with a promise of peace. And there's an additional promise uh, of guarding that we find here. So the promise of peace, the peace that surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So when I began to prepare for this message, um, knowing that peace is a key focal point of this message, I became um, alert and hypersensitive or hyper aware of, of the word peace. And so um, just in various different messages that we've heard in the past, um, in fact, several weeks ago, we use as a benediction, Romans 15, 13. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Um, so again, just a hyper-awareness of the word peace, Isaiah 9, 6, that Jesus is our Prince of Peace. Uh, last week in Micah, Micah 5, 5, Jesus is our peace. Peace is a person. Ezra was wearing a shirt the other day that had a, a, a Thessalonians passage on it regarding peace. I was like, hey. So um, just, um, just like I said, a hyper-sensitivity or awareness of the word peace. In fact, last, last Sunday night at the Christmas Eve service, a reference to Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So the very heart of the gospel is about bringing us peace. Jesus taking upon himself the punishment and wrath we deserved was to bring us peace. John Stott writes, something, uh, what is, um, and, uh, sorry, uh, so it's a peace that surpasses understanding. So Stott writes about this, that something, something which man cannot explain away, something beyond the range of human comprehension. It is something that transcends all understanding, human intellectual powers, human analysis, human insight, human understanding. From Romans 11, we learn that God is the source whose judgments are unsearchable and ways inscrutable. What does inscrutable mean? It means not readily investigated, inter interpreted, or understood. 
in Romans eleven thirty four. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? God is without counselors. Our challenge as Christ followers is not to seek to eliminate unpleasant circumstances, but to trust in the good purpose of his infinite, holy, sovereign, powerful God in every difficulty. To seek the Prince of Peace who surpasses our understanding in the midst of our trials. Paul mentions an additional promise in verse 7. This peace will guard. Guard is a military term implying that peace stands on duty to keep out anything that brings care and anxiety. It's also a picture of a Roman soldier guarding to protect. This imagery provides peace, a reminder that our Savior loves and cares for us. Again, we learned in Micah 5, 4, Jesus brings security and protection. So what does Philippians 4, 7 tell us? Is guarded. Well, what's guarded are our hearts and our minds. The heart being the wellspring of life, and obviously the mind, which we will talk further more about in the second section of our passage of Philippians. So this concludes the first section with the four commands and first promise of peace, with the additional promise of guarding our hearts and our minds. So now we move to the second section, which is verses eight and nine. In these verses, Paul gives the last two of his six commands. Um, So the fifth command is to think about these things. We'll get into the specifics of what we're to think about in a moment. But first, let's consider the word think or to think about. To think means to ponder, to give proper weight of value to, to take into account, to set your mind on them and a plan to act accordingly. It's to dwell on, to evaluate, to consider, to calculate. That is why what we think about and how we think about things is so important. All of us at some point are thinking about things. Um, The question is, what are we thinking about and how are we viewing this in light of the gospel? Because of the fall in Genesis 3, the mind of man has become corrupted. Apart apart from the saving work of Jesus and the renewing of the mind by God's word, Scripture describes the fallen, unsaved mind as depraved, focused on the flesh, hostile to God, foolish, hardened to spiritual truth, blinded by Satan, futile, ignorant, defiled. Chris Lungard, in his book, The Devoted Mind, gives a more focused description of what he calls the double dichotomy of the disposition of the mind, citing Romans 8, verse 6, which we recently looked at in our Roman study. So Romans 8, verse 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Lungard, in describing this double dichotomy, uses the phrase or uses this term called the great comma. He talks about the great comma of this verse. And it divides the verse into two halves. The double dichotomy, so he divides it into the two halves. We have the double dichotomy of the disposition of the mind. So the first dichotomy is the mind of the flesh or the mind of the spirit. The mind of the flesh is equal to a mind given over to the flesh, which produces anxiety, anger, and stress. Or the alternative, the mind of the spirit, which is devoted, a mind devoted to the spirit. It's an either-or condition. Either the mind is given over to the flesh or it's devoted to the spirit. We find the second dichotomy here 
between death or life and peace. Death being the fleshly-minded state, the fleshly-minded taste of death now. The weight and pressure of stress, anxiety, and anger tear us apart and bring death or life and peace. The restoration, redemption, healing. There are two kinds of people, one on each side of the great comma. On one side, there are those with their minds set on the flesh, those who, are, those who are spiritually dead. And on the other side of the comma, those who are in Christ, the spiritually minded who already have life and peace and continue to grow in spiritual mindedness as they renew their minds, Romans 12, 2, which we will be looking at in a few weeks. So those who are in Christ grow and renew their minds. They taste more life and enjoy more peace. Just as a believer's initial act of saving faith leads to a life of faith, so also the transforming of the mind of salvation initiates a lifelong process of renewing the mind. It's called the work of sanctification. And John Stott, speaking of our thoughts and thinks sanctification, says, If we are as a church to stand fast in the face of the world, then we must attend first and foremost to our personal sanctification, the state of our own heart and thoughts. F.F. F. Bruce, speaking of the mind and what we think about, says, Just as good food is necessary for bodily health, so good thoughts are necessary for mental and spiritual health. Careful thinking is the distinctive mark of the Christian faith. Working out our salvation, our sanctification, involves a transformation and renewing of the mind. So as Christ followers, we must discipline our minds to think. And Paul gives us Eight virtues to concentrate on. So the first virtue that he gives us is whatever is true. And that are, those are thoughts that are in accordance with fact or reality. We have to stop and ask ourselves if what we are thinking about is true. Is it consistent with the gospel? If it's not, then we need to redirect our thinking towards truth. When I find myself spiraling out of control... It is typically due to the fact that my thinking is not based in truth. Our emotions and feelings can get the best of us here if we're not grounded in truth. The second virtue Paul gives us is to think about what, that which is honorable, that which is dignified, worthy of respect. Again, we have to stop and ask ourselves if what we're thinking about is worthy of respect Is what I am thinking about something that I would want people to know that I'm thinking about? We all have those moments when we would be mortified if people knew what we were thinking about. This is a fruit of the fall. However, we are dwelling, however, we are dwelling on those thoughts. In those moments, we must recognize that these thoughts are not honorable, and therefore we must redirect our thinking to that which is honorable. We should confess these thoughts to the Lord who knows them already and ask him for help in redirecting our thoughts to what brings him honor and glory to change our hearts. Again, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and the mind thinks. The third virtue Paul gives us is to think upon that which is just. So those are thoughts that are having a basis in or conforming to fact or reason. They're reasonable. They're thoughts that conform to a standard of correctness. They are proper. They are thoughts that are acting or being in conformity to what is morally upright and good. They are righteous thoughts. 
Other translations use the word right or righteous here. But these are thoughts that are consistent with the law of God. God is a just God. Is what we are thinking about in light of his righteousness, his rightness, is it reasonable? Is it proper? Is it in light of his character and nature? The fourth virtue, pure. These are thoughts that make faulty or defective weakness or pollute. They're free from moral fault or guilt. They're holy, morally clean, undefiled. There's a sense of innocence with that. Does this describe the way you think? Is what you dwell upon in your thinking pure? If not, if not again, confess this to the Lord and ask for his help. This is also where you might confess your thoughts to a close brother or sister with the struggles that you're having and ask them to hold you accountable. Another verse that is helpful to us here is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, where Paul encourages us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The fifth virtue, to have thoughts that are lovely, thoughts that are attractive, lovable, sweet, gracious, generous, patient. Would the Lord describe your thinking as being loving towards others? Are your thoughts patient, gracious, and generous? We referenced reasonableness uh, earlier in the passage. Um, it's a disposition that seeks the best for everyone, charitable towards the fault of others. Again, are those your thoughts? The sixth virtue are thoughts that are commendable, of good reputation, highly regarded, and well thought of. And the seventh and eighth birth virtues are to think upon anything that is excellent and anything worthy of praise. So these are the eight virtues that Paul admonishes us to think about. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think upon these things. So this would be a great list for us to memorize um, and to frequently ask ourselves regarding what we're thinking about. So the last and final command that Paul gives from this passage is found in verse 9. Practice these things. Knowledge without application is meaningless or fruitless. Thought precedes behavioral, behavior or actions. So godly thinking cannot be divorced from behavior. So practice what you've learned, received, heard, and seen. Those words, learned, received, heard, and seen, have implications. So learned implies that you're teachable. Received implies that you're receptive. Heard implies that you listen. Seen implies that you are observant. Paul modeled the standards he preached. Would you say you are teachable, that you are receptive, that you listen, that you are observant? Would you say that you model or practice what you've learned, received, heard, and seen? If not, then the Lord if not, then we need to ask the Lord for our help in this. Now we come to the second promise of peace, which is found in verse 9. The God of peace will be with you. It's the God of peace makes peace between himself and sinners. Peace is linked to God's work in salvation. It is not something that we work for, but something we work from, since Jesus is already our peace. We find peace 
as we abide in Jesus. We spend time with him. We focus on his word. We seek his perspective on the things that don't make sense to us. We trust him when things don't make sense or seem to be falling apart. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. So are you ex- experiencing the Lord's peace in your life? If not, consider these six commands that Paul gives us to rejoice in the Lord, to let your reasonableness be known to everyone, to not be anxious about anything, to let your requests be known to God, to think about the eight virtues that he gives us, and to practice these things. So some points of application, hopefully that will help us, is to take time and to study and meditate on the attributes of God, his character and his nature. So we move into 2024. Um, I encourage you to, to, if you haven't ever read through the Bible in a year, I encourage you to, to read through Scripture this year, or at least find time to, to be consistent in your Bible reading. Maybe study the spiritual disciplines. Uh, I referenced the book, the, the Devoted Mind, by Chris Lungard. That would be a great read. The elders are going through that right now, and that's been very helpful and thought-provoking for me. And in 2024, trust him for everything that you need. The Lord is our peace. We can trust him. May the Lord use these verses in helping us frame our minds towards faithful obedience in 2024. May the Lord bring us all to a place where we can say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for this text and all that it says. Father, we ask that you would just help us to make application of these truths that you would help us to be aware of what we think about and to to break the cycle of fear and anxieties. Lord, that you would have have your way in our lives for your glory, for your honor this year in 2024. Be exalted, O God. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.